my name is Alfred Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about my forthcoming lecture. It is about the birds and their age-long relationship with man. It will be seen in theatres like this across the country. In my lecture, I hope to make you all aware of our good friends, the birds. Welcome to episode 18 of Once Upon a Nightmare. I am your host Lorraine and I'm here to discuss the horrors of the world, be it fictional or real. This week we are going fictional as I take us all the way back to 1963 to discuss the birds. Someone there? Who is it? Look. Pitch, this isn't usual, is it? We've been out back looking at the chickens. Something seems to be wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with those chickens, Mitch. That's the damnest thing I ever saw. I don't know. It seemed to swoop down at you deliberately. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind, rather, who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. I mean, birds just don't go around attacking people without no reason. You know what I mean? I think we're in real trouble. Huh? I don't know how this started or why, but I know it's here and we'd be crazy to ignore it. To ignore what? The bird war? Yes, the bird war. The bird attack play. Call it what you like. They're massing out there someplace and they'll be back. You can count on it. I keep telling you, this isn't a few birds. These are gulls, crows, swifts. I have never known birds of different species to flock together. The very concept is unimaginable. Why, if that happened, we wouldn't have a chance. Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. Thus saith the Lord God unto the mountains and the hills and the rivers and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, shall bring a sword upon you, and I will devastate your high places. Doesn't it seem odd that they'd wait all that time to start a, a war against humanity? What do you think they were after? I think they were after the children. For what purpose? To kill them. The Birds was directed by Alfred Hitchcock and he must be one of the most well-known names out there having directed films such as North and Northwest, Vertigo, Rear Window, Rebecca and of course the very well-known Psycho. Despite his status, he has not won an Oscar. Yes, he did receive the Irvin G. Thalberg Memorial Award, which he simply said, Thank you very much indeed and a Lifetime Achievement Award, but he never won an award for Best Director. And he is also a member of this group of directors such as John Ford, Steven Sodenberg, who have had two of their films nominated in the same year for Best Picture. And for Hitchcock, it was Foreign Correspondence and Rebecca. 
The film is loosely based on the book The Birds, written by Daphne de Maurier. The screenplay was written by Ed McBain. It's a 15, a horror thriller, and runs for about two hours. The film made about 11.4 million on a budget of around three. It stars Tippi Hedren as Melanie Daniels, Rod Taylor as Mitch Brennan, Jessica Tandy as Lydia Brenner, Susan Plachetti as Annie Hayworth, and Veronica Cartwright as Kathy Brenner. Melanie, while in a pet shop in San Francisco, meets Mitch Brenner. After a meeting between them both, Melanie decides to hunt down Mitch with a gift of two lovebirds for his younger sister. Unable to locate him at his city home, she follows him to the remote town of Bodega Bay, where he is spending the weekend with his mother and sister. Once there, strange occurrences begin to happen as flocks of birds begin to attack the occupants of this small town. The opening film title sequence is rather interesting. We don't get music, but we do get the sounds of birds screaming and shrieking, as well as the flaps and flutters of the wings. It's not a particularly pleasant noise, and the way the credits move from one to another, it's like they're being pecked away, being destroyed and shattered. The birds aren't overly clear, as they just look like these black smudges as they go in and out of the frame. The sound just becomes really quite menacing as it goes along. And it's all against this background of a cold white with blue pastel colouring for the letters and the colouring of the writing. It doesn't really match what we're seeing at all. The blue feels quite soft, safe. You definitely don't feel danger with that blue. And throughout the film, there is this definite deliberate use of colour. At first, of course, we have that blue and then there is the use of green. You tend to associate green with nature, beauty, not fear. And Hitchcock would use green to ensure that the audience felt an uncertainty within the film. Melanie is dressed in green. Some of the birds are green. Cars are various shades of green. The countryside is green. There's green at almost every turn, just different variations of it. And I don't really remember seeing a really deep green. They're all quite very light shaded types of green. Not the kind of green I like. Green's my favourite colour, but I wasn't a big fan of the greens in this, if I'm honest with you. And I will be honest, when I first went in to watch this, I hadn't seen it for such a long time and I'd completely forgotten it. So it was like I was viewing it again for the first time. I really didn't know what to expect in the way of getting that scare. I knew it wasn't going to be a gore fest or some crazy person coming out at night. And uh, but, you know, it was actually a really beautiful film to watch, which, of course, adds to how can something so beautiful to view be so awful with all the things happening in it. I will, though, say that the intro is a bit odd and let's face it it's a little bit stalkerish melanie's in this bird shop mitch comes in looking for the lovebirds for his 11 year old sister she pretends she works there now there's nothing wrong with taking a chance and trying to chat up someone that you find attractive but let's face it the next bit is a bit over the top you know he kind of knows who she is he's seen her in court he knows she doesn't work there but he's kind of playing with it a bit and when he leaves He doesn't seem overly interested, but she gets his license plate, finds out where he lives in the city, gets the bird, drops into his apartment. He's not there. It's kind of weird. Not that he's not there, but that she's gone there. So she just decides to drive to Bodega Bay, which is quite a while away, a few miles away. And when she's there, she finds out where he lives, drops the birds on his doorsteps, legs it to a small boat, and off she goes. This whole setup is really bizarre. She doesn't know this man, yet she's seen chasing him here and there. Now, don't get me wrong, I have no issue with a woman pursuing a man, but this is all a bit over the top. It wouldn't matter whether you're a man or a woman here. And she goes to such lengths to see him. And like purely from a safety point of view, would you really follow a man out of a small town, jump on a boat and go and see him? I don't think you would. She, of course, lies and tells him that she's come to see school teacher Annie Hayworth. 
which is quite sad as it's obvious that Annie has a thing for Mitch. But apart from a look here and there, Annie really does keep her cool. Hitchcock, he really does focus on the female relationships throughout this movie, not necessarily in a positive way all the time. It does feel as if it's all about this man, Mitch. It feels more about, the film feels more about them and the birds are kind of like a representation of what is actually happening. And I really did enjoy the scenes between Annie and Melanie as they discuss Mitch. After Melanie was invited to dinner at Mitch's family home, he sees her to her car, she's leaving, and he begins this really strange interrogation on her. He's a criminal lawyer and he's treating her like she's some sort of client. Yes, she may have lied about knowing teacher Annie Hayworth or selling, you know, selling birds, but he's really far too aggressive in his approach. His snide comments about a trip to Rome where it was reported that she went skinny dipping in a fountain and she says this didn't happen, but he just doesn't want to believe her. To be fair, she has lied to him a lot, but it's like she's being attacked and he won't let her speak. And while she, while she may have lied, she admits it very quickly. You know, she owns it quite quickly and he's so arrogant and he's so smug and his mother is also very suspicious of her and lets Mitch know this at every turn. But when she leaves, she heads back to Annie's house and this is where we see this interaction between them. There's a phone call at Annie's and this is Mitch inviting her to her sister's Kathy's birthday. And it's quite hard to watch when Melanie receives this call from Mitch. Melanie decided to stay in Bodega Bay for a night and she takes board in Annie's house. The phone rings, it's obviously Mitch. Annie's face lights up because she thinks he's calling her, but soon realizes that the call is from Melanie. Annie was a previous partner and she confirms what we think of Lydia. Lydia is not happy when Mitch has a woman in her life. As Melanie questions Annie more and more about this issue, she simply comes back with, she didn't like her simply because I existed. Lydia doesn't want any woman in his life. She wants him for herself. Her husband has died and she doesn't want to be abandoned. And obviously she thinks him going for another woman will mean that she will be no, no longer be relevant. Plus, another woman can give Mitch things that she simply cannot. But to be honest, I don't really see much of a difference with Annie and Lydia. They both can't seem to let go of Mitch. Annie was living in San Francisco, but moved to Bodego Bay after they split to be near him to keep that friendship. And this is yet another portrayal of a woman chasing after a man. She too cannot let go. She fears abandonment, just like his mother. I guess why leave San Francisco when he's there most of the time? Mitch divides his time between both San Francisco, San Francisco and Bodega Bay. And I suppose in a big city, it's harder to be seen. And if she goes to like this small place, she might be more noticeable to him in that setting. So when this call comes in, back to that, she doesn't she doesn't leave the room to give Melanie some privacy. She sits, not facing Melanie, but listening to what Melanie has to say. While she can't hear what Mitch is saying, you can tell from what he's asking, from the way Melanie responds to what his questions are. You know, you get the gist. We see Annie just sit there looking forward, never looking at Melanie as she just sits and takes it all in. We know she's heartbroken by it all as it's plainly obvious that she still loves him. And it's Annie's home and she has to endure this invasion into her own place, her place that should be a place of safety. But the issue is we don't like to think of a person we love having another interest, but we also need to torture ourselves by wanting to know what is going on, by listening in. And it's this, there's also this strange kind of triangle between Lydia, Annie and Melanie. And where we usually see the man chasing the girl, it would appear to be the reverse. Here he has all these three women wanting his attention. While Melanie does 
kind of try and come across like she's playing hard to get. She really isn't. Mitch isn't a very likeable character. He has this horrible ugh, arrogance to him. He doesn't, it doesn't feel like he's playing them off against each other because for him, he has it quite easy. Like Annie has made it, Annie's made it easy for him. I'm sure she's made it clear that she's happy to be friends. It's better than nothing. And it gets, you know, gets him off the hook. I feel he knows Annie has feelings for him. I mean, you can't believe that she'd move all the way out there for a friendship to such a small place where there wouldn't be many other suitors for her. You know, the city would have had more, but he's now got this like green light to do what he wants. He can ignore her feelings and justify in his own head. As she just says, it's a friendship. You know, at the beginning of the movie, you feel like this whole film is more of a love story than a horror film. As we see like Melanie and Mitch do this dance around each other, acting as if they're not overly bothered. Then we have the heartbroken Annie and her fear of abandonment and the mother. It's all about love and feelings, really. Melanie and Mitch, though, are they're quite an infuriating pair. She's constantly lying. He's constantly talking over her. And I'll be honest, I wasn't a fan of either at the start. I guess it's a bit the same with Melanie and Annie. Melanie knows that Annie has these feelings. But again, like Mitch, you know, Annie's really kept her dignity about the whole thing. She hasn't made a big fuss. So they can basically go on and do what they want, despite Annie having these feelings. So as the phone call was about this party, we then see Melanie and Mitch chatting on a hilltop overlooking the ocean while this party is going on below them. It's all very romantic as they flirt with each other. Then it gets very personal as he delves into his life, her life. Also, he's trying to make sure she doesn't leave that day and he gives her more alcohol which means she can't drive home and they then begin to make their way back down to the party and here we then see the look the look from Annie and Lydia not being able to hide how they feel about this new woman they give a very disapproving look and this is when we see the first major attack from the birds as they attack the guests at the party it's it's almost like when their feelings grow between the two the birds get even crazier when the people like Lydia and Annie are around them, getting more and more angered at the situation, the birds get even crazier. It's an obvious thing that Hitchcock does with how he shows the female behavior. He parallels it against the attack of the birds. If you notice, the women never really act out with their emotions. It's never really over the top. I mean, there's a bit of a scene with the mom, but you know, it's all very civilized when it comes to Mitch. And I suppose the birds attacking, is this like how they're really feeling? The birds are saying what they want to say. Another example is we see the attack within the house when Kathy suggests that Melanie stay at their home. Lydia tries to reason as to why this isn't a good idea. She doesn't want her there, giving Kathy a bit of a dirty look. And while Kathy and Mitch are trying to convince her to stay, Lydia is saying, it's so easy to get home now. You have the freeway. And again, this is when the birds start invading Lydia's home. When the birds attacked, it's Melanie who protects Kathy. It's like Lydia has lost her position in the family. Melanie brings both Kathy and Lydia out of harm's way. And when it's all over, we see a very frazzled Lydia trying to clean up the mess. The camera spends a lot of time on Lydia, who comes across as very confused. And she's she's lower down than the rest of them. And the camera keeps cutting between Melanie, Melanie looking down on her. Lydia's, Lydia's trying to say what happened when the police arrive, but he won't listen to her. He's completely playing down what she's saying. We then see a picture of her husband tilted to one side. I suppose the whole scene can represent the, the state of the home. It's a bit of a damaged home, both physically and mentally. And I suppose the final insult for Lydia comes when Melanie does offer to stay. She has now placed herself as this alpha female. Melanie in this again knows what she's doing. 
She doesn't say much, but she says enough. And the looks, God, so many looks in this film. The issue with people like this is they know how to play the game. Have you ever met someone that you feel very strongly about with regards to their intentions, but they have a way of conducting themselves that makes them come across, they're all very innocent and it makes, kind of makes you look like the crazy one. And that's the issue I have here with Melanie. She doesn't really do too much, but it's enough. And if Lydia would say anything, it looks like she has the problem. Um, you know, and Hitchcock, is, he's definitely up until this point playing these two women off each other. They're very much aware of what each other is doing, whereas Mitch is like completely oblivious to everything. But I do feel that it does start to change a bit between them. And there's quite a graphic scene that takes place on a farm that kind of is the lead up to this. Up until now, I suppose we haven't really seen anything too off the chain with regards to graphic scenes. But the death of the farmer, Dan, and the attack that the birds do to him, it's really quite visual. We know... We know it's the birds. Lydia goes to the farm to visit and on entering the home, she's met with this all too familiar view of chipped china, like the hanging cups again have been pecked away. Her face shows her concern and she does start to enter a bit more with caution. And when she gets into his room, it's a complete mess. And there are dead birds lying there, one stuck in the window. And then we start to see the legs, these bloody legs of a person. The clothes are ripped to shreds. Uh, the His PJs are destroyed, but he has these eyes pecked out. And he just sits there with these like two bloodied hollow circles in his face. And this, of course, sends Lydia fleeing. And she's really una unable to speak. And it's like she can't breathe. And when she arrives home, she's then greeted by both Melanie and Mitch. And she pushes them away. After this has happened... Not only does the relationship between Lydia and Melanie start to change, but also we start seeing more from Mitch and Melanie in the sense that they have that embrace. They're, they've got their arms around each other. They kiss and then Mitch has to go away. But then Melanie starts to want to take care of Lydia. Lydia's in shock and needs someone to help her. And, you know, they have a very open conversation. And I like this about Lydia. She's very honest about how she feels about Melanie. And she's very honest about the fact that she fears that Mitch will leave her. And she wants she wants to like Melanie, but she's not sure if she does. But you can see her actually trying to, to begin to try and figure her out, to, to try and like her. And I think here we see Melanie realise that Lydia isn't necessarily wanting to get rid of her, but she wants to make sure she isn't pushed out. And you know, Lydia's lost her husband. She's been very alone. And I like how this role was reversed at the end of the film. Melanie doesn't have a relationship with her mother. And you can tell by her embrace with Lydia at the end that they do start to actually care for each other. Or do they? Melanie clutches her arms and they both look at each other. And it feels like that moment they've accepted each other and realised that they can be there for each other as well as have Mitch. But then the sceptic in me kind of sees it in a bit of a different way of... Lydia being top dog again because she obviously wants to be the alpha. Lydia is in the back with Melanie and it's like a mother in the back with a poorly child while the father sits up front with the older siblings and Lydia she hasn't been attacked by the birds and she gets into the car with out a scratch and we get to see the car drive off from the point of view of the birds. You know the birds have won they've got rid, rid of them. They're like the dominant ones and could it be the same be said about Lydia? Maybe it's one of those cases where they want their roles, like Lydia wants to be the mother role and that's what she's doing. And Melanie obviously wants to take on the role of a lover 
but also have that relationship, that mother motherly relationship with Lydia because she doesn't have it with her own. But while the film had a lot of drama, um, also the filming didn't come without its fair share of drama. And it didn't sound like the most enjoyable experience. Um, Tippi Hedren in her memoir has gone on to say that there were times when Hitchcock just pushed her too far. And I think this was mainly in that last scene, the famous bedroom scene. Melanie enters the room and very quietly with a torch, you know, she looks at the roof and she can see the damage that the birds have caused, but it's all very quiet. And she looks up and, you know, we don't see any birds for a moment. We just see a gap in the roof and it feels like a bit of a safe space at this time. And she's kind of in front of the door now, but it's not fully closed. And as she lowers her light, we then see that there are lots of birds in the room and they begin to attack her and she falls and closes the door behind her and she gets stuck. And she's stuck between trying to open the door and trying to stop the birds from biting her, which they are, and they're very vicious. And this scene was meant to be done with mechanical birds, but this didn't happen. Apparently up until the day day of filming, Hitchcock had even promised Hedron that the mechanical birds would be used. But on the day of shooting, Hedron was told by a friend of hers, James H. Brown, he was the assistant director, that the fake birds they had planned on using, they weren't working. So they were going to have to use live ones. Brown... He, he couldn't look at her. He couldn't tell her what was happening. He When he entered her dressing room, apparently she said he wouldn't even look at her. But he had to, you know, tell her. She had to make him tell her. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems quite cruel to both the actress and the birds. I'm not sure what laws there were back then for animals. But I don't think you get away with that now, and rightly so. So to get the birds to attack, they just basically threw ravens, doves, pigeons at her, which sounds absolutely horrific and she wanted to say it was brutal and ugly and relentless and she also spoke of actor Cary Grant how he happened to visit the set that day and between takes he told her you're the bravest woman I've ever seen and if you really look at this scene he's right you can almost feel those birds pinching at her biting her with those beaks and they do this full frontal shot of a bird heading for her and the look of terror in her eyes and they do bite her quite close to her eyes and she completely loses it at this stage and she tells him she tells Hitchcock that she's done and she starts to cry with pure exhaustion and also these birds were tied to her they were tied to her when they were going for it and you can really see them biting down on her fingers basically anywhere there was bare skin there was blood but you could see the biting and she went on to say I was too focused on my own survival to notice, but I was later told that it was even more horrifying and heartbreaking for the crew to watch than the previous four days had been, records Hedron. And there wasn't a thing anyone could do. Only Hitchcock could put a stop to it. Like Rod Taylor even went on to say about how there was a particular raven called Archie that took a serious dislike to him and he would attack him whenever, you know, whenever he was there. So it got to the point where Taylor would come into work and he'd be like, is Archie here today? Because... If he was, he knew he was going to get attacked even when they weren't rolling. Anyway, after all this, she put her foot down and a couple of minutes had passed when she looked up on the floor, distraught, sobbing, exhausted, and she'd been completely abandoned. She just sat there in silence, feeling so empty. But luckily, she had a doctor who let loose on Hitchcock, demanding she be allowed to rest. And of course, he wasn't impressed as uh, she was the only person left to film. But she got the week off and, you know, this was a very trying time for her as she was also a mother to five-year-old Melanie Griffith, you know, who you may know as an actress. And she spoke of this time that she felt like her daughter had to take care of her 
And this bedroom scene wasn't the only scene where we see Tippy was put in danger. If you recall the scene where um, Melanie takes refuge in a telephone box, here we see Melanie being protected from the birds with this glass within the phone box. And the box itself was made with this shatterproof glass to prevent it from shattering. Um, as the mechanical birds were thrust against it, well, of course, this shatterproof glass was not so shatterproof. The glass would shatter, and as a result, Tippy's makeup um, man, Howard Schmidt, he had to pick shards of glass out of her face with tweezers. And you watch a film like this, and you don't like to think what someone is actually going through to get the shot to make it look that believable. You know, we like to think that people are protective, protected when they do these things, that they won't get hurt. But, you know, Tippy really gave it her all to do this role and while she does really give an amazing performance it's a shame that all these things had to happen to get it granted when i saw the birds biting her it did look very realistic but you just think that this is great filming but it wasn't really not in my eyes it was a woman suffering for a film that should not have been allowed and i think it's a shame that certain scenes i will now see differently and that's the thing with horror. It's not supposed to be real. Now, don't get me wrong. I know people are murdered and attacked in such horrific ways, but we have the comfort when watching a horror movie of knowing that the people being hurt, well, it's not really happening. And I can no longer say that about this film. And it just makes Hitchcock look like a bit of a dick. And I'm not going to go into details, but while researching this, I find quite a few horror stories about the man. And while I know he's the great filmmaker, it kind of took away from it a bit. He just come across as someone who knew he had a lot of power over people and used it for evil rather than good but I will let you go down that rabbit hole should you choose to do so another thing to definitely mention here is the cinematography and that is from a Robert book Burks he worked on quite a few films with Hitchcock um they were quite the team uh the location of um Bodega Bay was picked for its well-known foggy sky however when it came to shooting the skies had cleared and Hitchcock was not happy about this at all he wanted the doom and gloom of the bad weather the school used was condemned but um it was rebuilt for the filming and apparently the school was the only original building used for the film and it is now a private residence and you know I think let's face it the cinematography in here is pretty flawless Hitchcock was known for his oblique camera angles and this definitely draws the sinister nature of the birds in it shows us the power they have over the humans he also gives us the perspective of the characters um plus you know there is a of course the the um quick quick cut scenes which uh you know leaves you as the audience a bit disorientated and one of the last scenes with Melanie in the bedroom, it's so detailed as he cuts between, you know, the certain body parts as the birds are attacking her, making you feel every bit of it. Plus, I think the use of so many birds and cutting to them frantically flying around the room and you you feel she won't ever get out. One, one scene I felt her fear is when she is on the couch after um, she'd been attacked and she kind of comes to but she's looking into the camera and that really freaked me out as she's like staring in it and like throwing her eyes about that one kind of got me a bit and another scene uh, with Melanie outside of school where she just sits there having the cigarette and in the background we see like this climbing frame and it's empty there's nothing on it and then slowly one by one these like blackbirds ravens I don't know what they're called start to slowly no perch on there it's all very calm there's not an influx of them they're just a few at a time and we sit there waiting wondering what they're going to do and it's like the birds are almost toying with with her you don't feel they would have the capacity to be so like strategic but why are they not just 
going to kill her if this is kind of their thing and it's the waiting and the hearing and the not seeing and then the seeing but nothing happens it's just all this suspense of it all the kind of less is more here is the anticipation of what is going to happen with with these birds with you know one actual with one of the earlier scenes in the city we do see a bit of unusual activity with the birds there seems to be a large amount of them flying about and you know we're in the pet shop and the birds and you're left wondering will something happen this film is about birds after all nothing does so we're kind of this bit of false sense of security and you never know when they're going to attack and i think that's what this scene shows why aren't they attacking but when the children uh, are told to make a run from it from the school all these birds overhead they are losing their shit and they are flying down everywhere and you feel like these kids are going to be like swept up and swallowed through this like mass of birds and they come down and they start attacking them there's quite some close-up shots of the birds going for the kids and i hope i hope these were mechanical ones they then take refuge in a diner um melanie does and she's on the phone to her dad at this stage you know she rings him to tell him and this bit really annoys me where she's like i'm not being hysterical i'm just telling you what it is and she's very calm when she's talking to him and that really annoyed me and you know in here after the scene with the children when she's trying to explain to everyone in there nobody's really taking her seriously only one woman is really listening to her and she wants to leave and then the birds show up and there's this like explosion and it kind of this is when the devastation of what they can really do starts to show and when you if you if you've seen this bit there's the explosion it's a very high shot looking down on this it's a strange shape that the fire is actually made i don't know what that's supposed to be but when you're looking down on it you see these birds kind of more and more kind of coming and looking down and kind of just hovering and making these noises and there's like it's really weird it's like they're admiring what they've done I don't know it's just I just thought the thing whole thing was very very good but very bizarre like it's like they're it's like they, they you don't think of birds of being you know that smart but these ones kind of like you can just imagine them up there kind of like in an Austin Powers type way with yeah you know rubbing you know his finger to his mouth or something but anyway um but the residents of course need someone to blame because there is no explanation as to why this is going on and of course it all happened when melanie showed up so of course it's her and now the people of bodega bay you know they're never safe it doesn't matter whether they're inside or they're outside they're never protected so the whole area inside or out it's a cage it's a giant cage for the people of this place they're in this cage not the birds and now the birds are controlling all their actions but one other thing I found very strange, and I never noticed it the first time I watched it, it was on the second time I watched it, there isn't a score. It's very unusual in film. Music really helps with a scene. It makes you feel, you know, all the fuzzies if it's romantic or the scare if it's a horror building up to that death. But, you know, this alone, it gives the filmmaker, when you think about it, a lot more work. But what we do get in the way of sound is this never-ending sound of the birds or silence. And, but the birds, it's really not a pleasant sound. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the sound of birds chirping in the morning as much as the next person. But let's face it. This sound does not make you think of a peaceful morning. And then we never really get an answer as to what has happened. The characters themselves try to figure it out, especially when they're all in the that uh, diner. I think it's Tide's restaurant, it's called, after the birds have attacked the school. And of course, the only real blame, obviously, is Melanie. And, um, but you know 
we never really get an, a real reason. The birds are, you know, as I mentioned, there's symbolic of the relationships between the females, Melanie, Lydia and Annie, you know, of, of their what they're feeling. They all want to be top dog in Mitch's life and their actions are the cause of some sort of doom bringing in this storm cloud of birds. It's interesting that Annie does die. When we see her discuss Mitch, she isn't over the top. She's never forceful in her feelings. You know, when we see this woman feel for a man, you know, they usually do whatever it takes to get him. Annie, she's given up. She's accepted her fate, but she's still very jealous. And, you know, she kind of dies in more ways than one. I feel like with her, she's just existing there and hoping. There's nothing for her. Um, you know, all she wants is him. And when Melanie comes along, you know, she's lost her purpose even more because there's a, there's, you know, there's another obstacle that she knows that she's not going to overcome. And, you know, whether Melanie and Mitch were to become friends or lovers is kind of beside the point because Annie's relationship with Mitch will never be the same. She's been replaced. I think the end scene though, where they're all forced out of their home, it's, it's a really tense one. And as Mitch is trying to get his family and you know, a Melanie out, he's surrounded by all these birds, but they're not reacting to him, which makes me wonder why aren't they attacking him? You know, they've attacked Melanie and they've attacked Annie very badly. I know we have the the farmer, but why aren't they going for him? And, you know, we, we he goes into the car and he gets them into the car and they drive off kind of really slowly. It's almost like they're hoping that the birds don't hear them. And, you know, we just obviously see it then speed up. But then the light shines through like this dark cloud and could that symbolise hope? Would they make it? Apparently there was a different ending and Hitchcock threw it out. He felt the, at this stage, you know, the film was already over for the audience and he wanted them to kind of make up their own minds about what happened. And, you know, he also said about the last shot, it needed 32 different exposures for that, you know, that final scene. And it was one of the most difficult shots he'd ever done. But I think, I think this film, for me, it was, I did really enjoy it, but it was just really the female relationships and how they kind of all kind of come together in the end in the sense that, you know, Annie was certainly out of the way, not that she was ever an obstacle really for um, Melanie. So her dying because she was, she was of no use anymore, which is really quite sad. And you know, Lydia had got her son and her daughter, but also now become, you know, the mother figure to Lydia, to, to, to Melanie. So now she's got her position back. She was quite, you know, authoritative in, in that in that sense. And then Melanie has got a relationship with a mother figure. She never had that before because, you know, she talks about her mother like that. So a lot of it basically for me comes down to how how these women are in this film and the birds are you know a representat representation of what is going on and maybe they're so quiet at the end because you know Annie's gone and Lydia and Melanie have calmed you know they're very calm when they go off there's no like if anything Mitch is the more kind of we got to get out of here type thing whereas you know they're in the back and it's all very very loving you know so there was no need for the chaos of the birds and then off they go into the sunset hopefully and no no birds followed them up but um I would just like to say you know I really enjoyed watching this film but I think it's one of the and I do another film podcast called show me the podcast um and I think this is one of the hardest films I've 
had to unpack and it really kind of made me think of so many things and I feel like there's probably loads more I could um, have talked about but I'm actually glad it's done (laughs) Um, but I hope you enjoyed it and if you've got any more if you've got any thoughts about the film or if you feel like I've completely misread it because obviously how you watch a film and how you see it can be can be different Um, yeah let me know I'd be I'd be really interested to hear but after that I'm so glad it's over (laughs) after that um, I want to move on to something that I really do love and that is this week's podcast promotion so this one is not what I'd usually go for. I'm not really into music podcasts, but this one has completely changed that for me. If you follow me on Twitter, you will see I listen to this one religiously. It's every two weeks, um, but I, I I look forward to it coming out, I think, um, when it comes out. And I just love listening to Seth chat about his love for music. He's like such an old soul and he's got all these amazing stories and you know, he's definitely the selling point, but I shall let this gorgeous man tell you for himself. And this is the podcast, Trouble Trouble. Hello, you're listening to Trouble Trouble, a music podcast, and I'm your host, Seth. Throughout our bi-weekly adventure through music, we will discuss one album at a time. An album is an adventure through an artist's mind. Music is like a language. What message are these artists trying to get across? We will examine the stories behind the albums, themes, and my favorite lyrics through a queer lens. Make no mistake, this podcast is for everyone. Come as you are. I hope you'll join me and maybe a guest or two along the way as we build our connection to music. Make sure to subscribe to Trouble Treble Podcast and leave a review if you enjoyed your adventure. Rock on, young savior, and don't give up your hopes. Oh my God, I love that theme tune. I actually listen to the podcast to the whole of the end so that I can listen to the whole theme tune. And uh, even my kid knows what it is. And uh, yeah, I just love it. But if you want to know loads about him, then obviously go to social media and uh, follow him on all the websites, social media websites, Twitter and stuff. And um, yeah, go give him some rating and reviewing on the old Apple iTunes. Five stars is all we accept here. But yeah, hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Anyway, I would like to say thank you for listening. And um, uh, don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Please give nice ones for this one because God, I think this is one of the hardest ones I've done. Anyway, I really do appreciate all the feedback and I have had some really nice comments from people, which is always nice to hear. And thank you for everyone who's promoted it, shared, listened, liked, all that kind of jazz. Um, If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram as Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast, Twitter as A Nightmare Pod, Letterboxd as A Nightmare Pod and Facebook as Once Upon a Nightmare and you can email me as once upon a nightmare pod at gmail.com and as i mentioned i also do another podcast called show me the podcast where i talk about film and tv with my best mate harry so you can go check that out if you want and i will be back probably very soon with another horror film because i've got a lot to pack in before the end of the year so i will leave you now and say goodbye bye